Hey there, Zoo Pals. It's John, and I'm here at the Louisville Zoo. I'm getting ready to head in, and the first thing we're going to do is take a left at the end of this path and head on towards the lemurs. I'll see you guys at the zoo. Hey guys, we're coming up here on the ring-tailed lemur exhibit. It's got a nice loop that goes around it to allow you to view them from every angle. These guys like to move around on the ground, um, more so than most lemurs. Lemurs in the wild have a lifespan of about 16 to 19 years. But when in captivity, their lifespan can extend for up to 10 years more, allowing them to reach an age of almost 30. Here at the Louisville Zoo, the best time to see the lemurs is early in the morning or later in the evening. But around lunchtime, you can catch them uh, by the clear glass viewing area where their door that the keepers will come in and out of sits. Uh, they're waiting for food <laughs> and they definitely want some of those delicious berry treats. Their Latin name is lemur cata. The first part of it comes from the word lemures, which means spirits of the dead. That's in reference to their ghost-like reverence that is observed by natives of Madagascar um, who used to believe that these creatures were actually the ghosts of the dead. And uh, the second part of their binomial name, Kata, references the fact that of all the lemurs, ringtails act and behave and to some extent look like cats. Lemurs are all prosimians, which makes them the oddball cousins of monkeys and apes. Like all prosimians, their sense of smell is excellent and their night vision is stellar. The long claw on their pointer fingers and forward pointing incisors in their mouths are used for grooming each other. These grooming behaviors are important for the social cohesion of groups of lemurs. These groups are matriarchal, meaning that they are led by the mothers and they range from five to 25 members. It's nice to see that they have a group of lemurs here at the zoo since they're used to being in a group environment. Uh, their group is small, but that's because they've lost some lemurs recently. Um, they used to have another species of lemur here at this exhibit, but it's just the ringtails now. The misters that you can see spraying uh, in the center of their exhibit helps replicate the humidity of their home on Madagascar, although these guys are usually hanging out in the shade on hot days. Sometimes the keepers here at the zoo will freeze some berries into ice cubes and give them as a little treat. All the keepers who have to handle lemurs wear a mask and gloves as many of the things that can make people sick can also make lemurs sick. As I said before, ringtails are unique among lemurs in that they spend a lot more time moving around on the ground um, and some will even sit in what looks like a meditative pose basking in the sun. I wonder what a lemur meditates about. Probably blueberries. Anyways, I'll see you guys at the warthog exhibit, but you look at the lemurs as long as you want. Hey guys, we're here at the Warthog exhibit. Its scientific name is Phacocoeris africanus, which uh, interestingly means African warthog. Warthogs are pretty different than most other wild pigs you'll see. You can see that they have a lot longer uh, and skinnier legs than most pigs do. And they have fine skin bristles and a thorough mane. I've got one walking up to me right now. 
and you can very clearly see uh, the warts on his face and see his tusks pointing out to the side. Now the tusks aren't anything special that we don't have, they're actually the same canine teeth that people have in their mouths, just grown out to the side and much larger and more curved than uh, anything you would see in a person's mouth, or I hope that you would see in a person's mouth. Although they primarily feed by kneeling down on their uh, knees and eating grass that way, they also do like to root through the mud to find for stems uh, in the dry season, bulbs, that sort of thing. Buried treasure can be a good snack for a warthog. However, they are omnivores, so they could conceivably survive on a diet of grubs and insects, so no worries there. They're quite fast when needed in the wild, but the pair here at the zoo prefer to play in the mud, looking for food. The one in front of us right now has been following us around for the last few minutes. I think he wants a cameo here in the podcast. Their tusks are, as I said, curved canine teeth, and they use those not only for self-defense against predators, but to establish social dominance over other males. I'll catch you guys across the path at the rhino exhibit. We're here at the exhibit for the white rhinoceros, and right now he's pretending to be a statue, which has allowed me to get a great photograph of him. The scientific name for the white rhinoceros is Ceratotherium simum. Cerato meaning horned, therium meaning wild beast, and simum meaning flat-nosed um, of the animals here at the zoo. This is the first one with a excellently descriptive scientific name as its distinguishing features from other rhinoceros includes its flat nose, and of course the fact that it has two horns, as opposed to uh, the rhinoceros which have one horn. The white rhino is the largest of the five rhino species, and has two subspecies. One, sadly, uh, has two living members, and both of them are female, so that subspecies is soon to go extinct. That's the northern Katoni. Uh, in reference to its lighter skin color, and the near-threatened southern Simum uh, Simum, which is the southern white rhinoceros. Uh, that one is in much better positions in terms of conservation, but it is still definitely in danger from poaching. It was initially described uh, by Dutch settlers as the wide rhino, um, the Afrikaans word for this was misheard by English settlers as the white rhino, and the name stuck. It can be distinguished from other rhinoceroses by the shape of its mouth and the large hump on its neck above its shoulders. Because it's the largest rhino, it also has the biggest head, and so that's a large mass of tendons and muscles that help support this man's enormous dome. Conservation efforts to protect the white rhino include dyeing the horns pink with a special substance that uh, both is easy to recognize and is poisonous to people who intend to consume it, or removing the horns altogether, a painless procedure akin to us cutting back our hair or nails. Rhino horns are actually made of the same material as human hair and nails, called keratin, and while it seems a lot more like nails, it's also much, much thicker than either of those would be in a person. 
An adult male can weigh up to 5,000 pounds, which is more than your average car. Be sure to go up the stairs at the back of the exhibit to get a better view of the rhino, and you might even be able to sneak a peek over the wall to see the other rhino in the back exhibit. I'll see you guys outside the giraffe house. Hey guys, we're outside the giraffe house right now, looking at the waddled crane. For once he's actually visible in his enclosure, usually I don't get to see him. The waddled crane's scientific name is Bugaranus carunculatus. The first word comes from the Latin for crane, garanus, mixed with the Latin for bull, which is bus. And the last name uh, is in reference to his waddle, as a caruncle is a piece of flesh. If you're asking yourself, what's a waddle? That's that jiggly piece of meat underneath of his neck, much like turkeys have. So it's a, once again, a very apt scientific name. This is, of course, an African crane, which is why it's here in Africa. And it's quite beautiful if he ever does turn to face you. I'll see you guys inside the house. Now we're inside the giraffe house. We're looking at the rock hyrax here as he munches on a pile of greens. Looks like the salad I plan on eating for lunch today. The rock hyrax's scientific name is Procavia capensis, uh, named because of his similar appearance to a cavi, um, and capensis in reference to the Cape of Good Hope, as they were first uh, discovered by Western science in South Africa. Like all hyraxes, they have sticky secretions in their paw glands that allow them to climb near vertical surfaces, as long as it's not raining. They're the only hyrax that partially lives outside of Africa, with some populations going as far as Saudi Arabia. Usually I see him up high on one of the ledges near the back of the exhibit, although today he's quite close to the front as he contentedly munches on his lunch. And of course, they share their exhibit with the pygmy falcon, which I've seen exactly once in my many trips to this zoo. So if you look up high to the left, you can see the box where they make their nest. Moving along, we have a few birds that are home to North Africa. Uh, you can see the bald ibis and the European black stork in here. Now they do look very similar. They both have uh, iridescent bodies with mostly black feather, and they have long red beaks. However, the bald ibis is slightly smaller and has a curved beak and white legs, whereas the European black stork is slightly larger, has a straight beak and red legs. You may also see some other uh, avian denizens in here. Today uh, there is a duck just chilling out, um, but those are the primary birds in this exhibit.
Hey guys, we're stepping outside the giraffe house here. Take note that depending on the season, the giraffes may be hanging out in their indoor exhibit, uh, where you might want to listen to this part, or they may be hanging out in their outdoor exhibit, where I'm recording this part. The giraffe exhibit is the first one that I really want to comment on uh, the quality of its design, uh, but we'll get to that in just a sec, because the giraffe's scientific name, Giraffa camelopardus tipplescurchi, for the Maasai giraffe that they have here at the Louisville Zoo, um, has an interesting history to it. Giraffes used to be known as camel leopards due to their somewhat camel-like appearance and leopard-like patterns. They are, of course, the tallest land animal that is currently alive. Uh, their nine subspecies are based on the pattern of spots that they have. The pattern here at the Louisville Zoo is, as I've said, the Maasai giraffe, um, and its subspecies name is Tipplescurchi. Giraffes are able to distinguish each other by these markings, and they will not interbreed between different markings, which is very interesting. Because they can interbreed with giraffes of other patterns, but actively choose not to. Giraffes, astonishingly, have the same number of bones in their neck as people do. What this, of course, means is that those bones are truly enormous compared to the ones that we have. Because of this, their necks are just about as flexible as ours are, so think you can turn your head to the side and just about touch it to your shoulder if you're pretty flexible. You can move it forward and back, but you're not getting a ton of range of motion. Now imagine if your neck was six feet long, but you still have that exact same range of motion, and you'll be in the mindset of a giraffe. In order for them to take a drink from this beautiful pond in front of me, they have to splay their front legs out in a wide angle and lower their head down. Now, in addition to having to go to all that effort just to get their head to the water, they also have a specialized series of valves in their neck that stops blood from rushing to their head. If you've ever tried to do a handstand before, you know what I mean. Because they have such an enormous volume of blood, these valves keep the giraffe's head from being filled with blood every time it reaches down to get some water. Obviously, the giraffes find this inconvenient, and so we have seen at times the zoo set up hoses that are spraying into the air on particularly hot days, and the giraffes will just stand next to the hose and uh, lick the water out of the air. To them, it must be more efficient than bending all the way down just to get a drink of water. I've been asked by the zoo to note that, yes, there are a lot of Canadian geese. Uh, they like to frequent all the different ponds in the zoo. Uh, please do not feed the geese or try to interact with them at all. Uh, they, of course, are locals, so they're welcome uh, to come in and out of the zoo as they please. Uh, but we try not to let them get too invested in their time here. Looking at the fence line here, it seems as though the giraffes think the grass is greener on one side than the other. Uh, you can see off to the left that the pine trees have been picked clean as far as the giraffes are able to reach. Which I find amusing because of course they have plenty of food given to them, but of course they're still going to graze on the food which is available. They pick branches clean using their bright blue prehensile tongues. Their exhibit design is also cleverly disguised with the uh, cleverly disguises the edge of the enclosure with perspective tricks. 
The nearer end has what seems to be a relatively shallow pond that rapidly deepens, providing a natural feel to the barrier, while in the distance, the pride rock-like structure looms with its accompanying lions. This exhibit also houses several African bird species, which we'll touch on when we reach the other side of the exhibit. Although older, this exhibit is quite immersive and makes me feel as though I'm gazing out onto the African savanna, and it's one of my favorites. Next up, we're going to go see the bongos. Hey guys, as you're coming up on the bongo exhibit, you might see the Etscorn Garden, uh, or as I think of it, the Prayer Garden. That's a nice place to stop and reflect, especially if you're here at the zoo on your own. Uh, take some time to do some thinking, to do some praying, and of course, rest your weary feet. I know we're only a few exhibits in, but there are some nice hills here at the Louisville Zoo, so it's good to stay rested. I'm coming up on the bongo exhibit here and they do share their exhibit with a few birds as well. The bongo's name, in scientific terms, is Tregolephus uricirus isaaci, meaning Isaac's broad-horned goat stag, which is, again, a fairly apt description. The forest-dwelling bongo is the largest forest-dwelling antelope of all the ones that make their home in the woods. Uh, they have uh, Nice straight horns that they can tuck against their back when they're running in order to avoid hitting branches and getting caught up, which is helpful when they are fleeing from predators like the leopard. Their exhibit provides a nice facsimile of a forest, giving them private spaces to retreat to without reducing visibility to visitors. It's actually a lot of work to get these trees to grow in such a way that they're providing a lot of shade, making it feel like they're home in the forest, while still making it easy for us visitors to view the bongos. And so the zoo has done some excellent work here. There's also a nice gentle slope that, when they're at the back of the exhibit, places them at the same level of elevation as the visitors, which helps, once again, immerse the visitors in a simple way, making us feel like we're truly seeing a bongo in its natural habitat. Like cows, they are ruminants and have four different stomach compartments to help them digest the tough plant matter they consume. At the time of this recording, there's a baby bongo here at the zoo, which is very exciting. His name is Zawadi, which is Swahili for gift, and he is truly a gift to us all. The bongos share their exhibits with several other African birds, the first being Ruppel's griffin vulture, um, which has a nice monochromatic color palette, uh, some nice alternating black and white. Those are the ones that are out today as we record. You also might be able to see the East African crown crane, which is a very unique looking bird, um, similar to a secretary bird, who has a nice tuft of feathers on the back of his head and a bright red wattle on his neck. Now we're going to move on to the attics. We're looking at the Attics exhibit here. Its scientific name is Attics nasomaculatus. Attics meaning 
crooked horned beasts, and nasomaculatus, referring to the part between their eyes on their nose with a white patch. You can also see darker patches right under the eyes that help protect them from the glare of the desert. And of course, uh, the addicts here at the zoo, their horns all spiral in different ways. So there's one where the horns spiral closer together, and the others, their horns spiral further apart. The addicts is a desert dweller and tends to frequent shade during the hottest parts of the day, doing its grazing in the mornings and evenings. We're at their exhibit during the part of the day where it's just starting to be sunny in most of their exhibit. Uh, but it's a nice enough day that uh, two of them are just chilling out in the patches of sand that are available to them, and one of them is very enthusiastically going to town on his feed. They are much less prone to fights in the wild over dominance or mates, as survival in the desert necessitates some cooperation. So their herd sizes used to be larger than most antelope. However, a sparse remaining population leaves this critically endangered animal with small herds, both here at the zoo and at home in the Sahara. Note in their exhibit, and the bongo exhibit previously, how the slope naturally provides a barrier between visitors and the animals, while also allowing them to be elevated to the same plane. The addicts like to hide on the concrete at the end of the slope when the wall provides some shade, so to be sure to check there if you can't see them. The addicts shares their exhibit with the African spurred tortoise, another example of immersion through multiple animals in the same exhibit that would normally share habitat even in the wild. Next, if it's an appropriate season, you can walk through the butterfly garden with us. We're walking through the butterfly garden here at the Louisville Zoo and uh, looking at all these different native species of butterfly that are released regularly to freely roam the zoo. Four or five butterflies escape from this enclosure every day, uh, which is okay because they're all butterflies that are endemic to Kentucky. If you're lucky, you may even see some newly emerging from their cocoon, forming a caterpillar, formerly a caterpillar, now a beautiful butterfly. Just watch your step. Sometimes the butterflies like to sit on the ground and feed on things that have fallen from plants. The highlight for me when it's a butterfly exhibit is the monarch butterfly. Its scientific name, Danaeus plexippus. Its English name honors King William, the Prince of Orange. Because they are orange butterflies, they referred to them as monarchs. The scientific name, even more interestingly, refers to the Greek figures Danaeus, a king who had 50 daughters, and plexippus, one of the 50 sons of Aegyptus, who each married the 50 daughters of Danaeus. Um, it's probable that this is to tie in with their name Monarch, uh, in reference to three separate kings. This is the only known migratory butterfly. Some butterflies have large extended ranges, but monarchs specifically migrate from Mexico to Canada and back. In the spring and summer, they spend their time throughout the United States and in southern Canada, feeding on their preferred food, milkweed. And then they fly south to Mexico to overwintering sites deep in the mountains. These sites weren't discovered until 1975 and are a sight to behold with thousands of monarch butterflies huddling together to make it through the winter. The milkweed that they feed on as caterpillars makes them poisonous to predators. Because of this, 
other butterflies mimic their coloration to avoid being eaten. In the fall, the butterflies are released, and during the Louisville Zoo's Halloween Boo at the Zoo, it's reconstructed as a spider exhibit. If you're brave enough, feel free to venture in and be surrounded by some native Kentucky spiders as well. Next, we move on to the elephants. Guys, we're here at the elephant exhibit. Today I'm looking at both the African and Asian elephants. They have a separated enclosure that keeps them apart. Uh, we see the mother African elephant walking around with little baby fits. They're both doing some training right now. And the Asian elephant is giving itself a mud bath, which honestly looks quite refreshing at this point in time. The Asian elephant, or Asiatic elephant, or Indian elephant, as it has been called, uh, its scientific name is Elephas maximus, meaning largest elephant, which is funny because the African elephant uh, is in fact bigger than the Asian elephant. The African elephant, uh, and this is specifically an African bush elephant versus the African forest elephant, the African bush elephant is Loxodonta africana, meaning African Longtooth. Again, a fitting name. African elephants can be distinguished by their larger ears. Uh, some would say they are even shaped like the continent of Africa. The concave curve to their back right above their shoulders. And points on their trunk at 12 and 6 on an analog clock. Whereas Asian elephants have a convex hump to their back, smaller ears, and only one point on their trunk at 12 o'clock. Asian elephants also have smaller tusks, and all four species of Asiatic elephant have, to some extent, been domesticated. All elephant species, however, are endangered, so we're glad to see a healthy young African elephant in fits, another zoo baby. Elephants can be pregnant for up to 22 months, and this, of course, contributes to their smaller populations. In the wild, elephants will often form into very large herds. Um, primarily with females and uh, young elephants. Um, when male elephants go into their breeding season, which is called musth, they uh, have a lot of very interesting behaviors that they get into. However, uh, most zoo animals are actually conceived via in vitro fertilization. Fits, like most zoo babies, was the product of artificial insemination, which is done for almost all zoo animals to ensure that no animals are hurt in the baby-making process. Because elephants are used to being in their family groups, Fitz is usually in the same portion of the enclosure with his mama. Today, they're doing some training, and it looks like Fitz is finally starting to pick up what the training is supposed to be. Uh, we see the keeper walking along, feeding them bits of food. Um, the Louisville Zoo is particularly proud of their training program. He likes to play with his enrichment toys or give himself a dust bath, an old elephant trick that works for them both as sunscreen and insect repellent. This is a great place to remind your kids that it's okay to ask the keepers questions. They're here because they love animals and they love educating people about animals, 
and this is a fantastic place for them to learn something new about their favorite animal. Next, we're moving on to the lions. I'm sure you've heard them hollering and maybe even seen them from across the giraffe exhibit. Here we are with the lions. The lions here at the zoo enjoy an excellent view of their surroundings from their pride rock-like outcropping. The large gap may seem excessive, but most lions can jump at least 10 feet horizontally, so it's for your own protection. I certainly like the grandeur of this exhibit. It's fitting for the king of the jungle. Lions are the most social of the big cats. Here at the zoo, you can see the king himself with two lionesses, usually chilling out in the shade. In the wild, groups of four to six females and their cubs form prides with communal food resources and child rearing. You'll see these prides playing together, and this is not only to establish social bonds, but also to decide what roles they will play when they're hunting for prey. Lionesses are known to suckle the cubs of other lionesses in their pride. So childcare and child rearing is a community effort amongst lions. This is rare as most big cats are solitary. Male lions uh, do tend to be more solitary in the wild. They may find themselves uh, in groups of two or three, uh, maybe slightly larger if they're all relatives. Um, and those groups may join together to rule over multiple prides at once. Typically, they rule over a pride for about two to three years before they are displaced by other males. So, if the timeline in The Lion King is anything to go by, it's fairly accurate. Luckily, the male here at the zoo has no such competition. Most of the time, you'll just see them relaxing, but every now and then, you'll hear them roaring in the distance. Today, all I can hear is animatronic dinosaurs roaring. But the lions seem to be enjoying it. While we're over here, you can also see the other end of the giraffe exhibit. There's some white storks in the exhibit right now, and sometimes uh, Ruppel's griffin vulture will find its way in there as well. This is also the place where, in better times, you can do giraffe feeding. Uh, at the time of this recording, unfortunately, there is no feedings right now, so I can't give you my first-hand experience. But this is uh, a part of the exhibit where you can peel back the illusion that they created of walking amongst the savanna. In return, you get to interact directly with the giraffes. Next, we'll head over to the camel rides. Now we're at the camel exhibit, where you have the chance to ride on a camel. It's interesting that this is the exhibit that they chose to have people ride in the animals, because the camel that you see here, the dromedary camel, is actually solely domesticated. They no longer exist in the wild. Um, and the only wild herds that you can find of the dromedary camel are in fact descended from domesticated camels that have gone feral. Their scientific name Camelus dromedarius means running camel, as when they were first named, 
They were often used for racing in places like the Hippodrome in Rome, which is where their name comes from. They have large humps on their back, which is characteristic of camels, um, and they're distinguished by the fact that they only have one, as opposed to the Bactrian camel, which has two. These humps, in fact, are used to store fat, as opposed to the common misconception that they are used to store water, as when they're out in the desert, it's more important for them to have food reserves uh, since they can get all the water they need from cactuses and other desert plants. An erect hump indicates that the camel is well-fed, while the hump can become floppy if it needs to draw on its fat reserves in order to survive. Here at the Louisville Zoo, their domestic nature is on full display, and you will have the opportunity to ride on them. Camels and their relatives are uniquely suited to surviving in low water environments due to their uniquely shaped red blood cells that allow them to function effectively even when dehydrated. Their broad feet and long eyelashes are also ideal for desert traversal. Next, we're gonna move back where we came and look at the zebras. On our way past the zebra exhibit, I'm sure you noticed the petting zoo. It's a great place to stop and say hello to some sheep, some goats. They even have a tortoise in there that you can pet. The zebras themselves here at the Louisville Zoo are the mountain zebra breeds, specifically the subspecies Hartman's mountain zebra. Their name scientifically is Equus zebra Hartmani, which means Hartman's zebra horse. It's commonly asked if zebras are closely related to horses, and yes, of course they are, but uh, what's less well known is that the subspecies of zebra, and or rather the species of zebra, are as biologically diverse between each other as they are between wild horses and donkeys. The mountain zebra lives in herds numbering in hundreds. It has smaller vertical stripes on its front end and a larger horizontal stripes on its, on its rump. It also has a distinctive dewlap on its neck. Uh, it sort of looks like an Adam's apple, although it is a little bit different from that, which is the easiest feature to distinguish it from other species of zebra. It is thought that their stripes serve several purposes. First, they help the herd stay together as the zebras seem to instinctively recognize stripe patterns and their species um, to allow them to recognize their herd versus other animals. They also seem to prompt a grooming response in zebras, a behavior that eases social tensions between the individuals. This is most likely a holdover from the intimate grooming relationship between a mother zebra and her calf, or foal rather. Interestingly, um, their sandy, hilly terrain here at the zoo and large enclosure makes these mountain dwellers feel right at home. Today they're hanging out in the shade, but they can be found in almost any part of their exhibit. They seem to be in a different place each time I come. Next, if you'd like a break, we've arrived at the African Outpost, a great place to stop and get your kids to go to the bathroom, drink some water, 
etc. If you're ready to move on, we'll talk next about Colobus Crossing. Colobus Crossing is one of the Louisville Zoo's newest exhibits and serves as an excellent lesson in exhibit design. Zoo exhibits must be built with both the animal residents and human visitors in mind, and the decision to have pathways overhead is one that awes visitors and is likely to entertain the animals as well. This allows the monkeys to observe visitors safely from perches overhead and allows unimpeded access to their indoor viewing area. This ambitious exhibit design gives a similar immersive feeling to walking through the tunnels in an aquarium. Except, instead of a shark swimming over your head, you might see a monkey munching on a head of lettuce. This exhibit houses two monkeys together. The titular black and white colobus monkey, with its, of course, long black and white fur and distinctive tail. And Schmidt's red-tailed monkey, the smaller species with a distinctive red tail. These species coexist well because they have different dietary needs. Colobus monkeys have a special three-part stomach that houses unique microbes that help them break down their plant-rich diet, allowing a specialized niche in the wild feeding on leaves. This helps them avoid conflict over more nutritionally rich food sources such as fruits, although they'll still take them when they can get them. We're watching a colobus monkey right now as he sits and eats some of the grass that I watched him pluck up from the ground and carry up into a tree. Because of his special stomach, he's going to get a lot more nutrients out of that grass than the other monkey that he shares the exhibit with. Schmidt's red-tailed monkey is the most common subspecies of red-tailed monkey, and they primarily feed on fruit, and in the wild they can also eat insects, lizards, small frogs, etc., allowing them to peacefully share space with the leaf-eating colobus. This new exhibit is certainly worth a visit, and is one of the highlights of the Louisville Zoo for me. If you're having trouble locating them outdoors, be sure to check their indoor viewing area, where you can see both the Schmidt's red-tailed monkey and the colobus in their own separate spaces. Next up, we're going to be looking at the meerkats. We're coming up on the meerkat exhibit. Today these guys are hanging out outside. As usual, when we walked up, one of them was on lookout, peering into the sky to watch for predators, while the rest were scrambling around somewhere, wrestling somewhere, searching for food. The meerkat's scientific name is Suricata suricata, um, which gives rise to their other common name, the suricates. They're a member of the mongoose family. Here at the zoo, they certainly do enjoy a no-worries lifestyle. But in the wild, meerkats are always alert. They dig tunnels to form burrow systems using their long claws and always have lookouts keeping an eye out for imminent danger. This early warning system allows them to avoid most predator encounters before they happen, and is only possible because of their communal tendencies. They are mostly insectivorous, enjoying the odd bug or grub, but may also eat the roots and bulbs they come across while digging. Be sure to check outdoors where we're seeing them today 
and indoors in their inside viewing area to make sure that you see all the meerkats have to offer. Next, the naked mole rats. The naked mole rat, interestingly, is not naked, is not a mole, and is not a rat. Its scientific name, Heterocephalus glauber, means different head and smooth skin. It was first named by a scientist who thought he had discovered a malformed rat baby, but upon closer inspection, realized he had discovered an entirely new species. Naked mole rats, at first glance, appear to be small and pitiable creatures, and yet they have an astonishing array of abilities. Their skin is resistant to pain from both acid and capsaicin, which, if I'm being honest, is not an experiment that should have gotten approval, approval from the ethics committee, but nonetheless, it's an experiment that's been conducted. They are effectively immune to cancer through a number of different mechanisms, including much more accurate DNA replication and much less of an effect when they are hit with mutagens. They have by far the longest lifespans of any rodents, around 30 years, which, is, which makes their cancer resistance especially important, given that many rodents are prone to large cancerous growths. They can survive for a long time in low oxygen environments without permanent effects and adaptation to their stuffy underground homes and can even behave normally with no oxygen, that's 0%, for up to 18 minutes before they start to show any effect. They are the only non-warm-blooded mammal that is known and rely on each other for warmth, as they are unable to regulate their own temperature like we are. Here at the zoo, you can usually find them all cuddled up in the same alcove of their little nest. However, what's most interesting to me is the social structure of the naked mole rats, which mirrors that of ants, bees, and termites. They have one breeding female, the queen, and the rest of her brood lives to serve her or to mate with her. This is the only non-insect to observe this sort of social structure and is an interesting homologue to be sure. Next up, we'll move along Gorilla Trail to see the pygmy hippopotamus. As you move along Gorilla Trail, you'll be passing, first off, the first outdoor gorilla enclosure. I see gorillas in this area now and then, but they're best viewed from some exhibits later on, so we'll touch on the gorillas in a moment. Next, you'll pass by the top end of the Pygmy Hippo exhibit. Their exhibit resembles a river running downhill and has several waterfall features that the hippos love to lay right underneath. Usually about half the time I see the hippo at the top of the waterfall or the other half of the time I see them at the bottom of the waterfall. The pygmy hippopotamus or Coreopsis liberiensis is a rare second species of hippo as opposed to the one that frequents the Nile. 
the pygmy hippo is about five times smaller than the standard hippo and can get to a, about 600 pounds at its full adult weight. Its scientific name means pig-like and from Liberia. And its English name is from the Greek for hippopotamus, hippo meaning horse and potamus meaning river. So when we call them hippopotamus in English, we're in fact calling them river horses, which seems about right. They're built for life in the water and are dense enough to walk along the bottom of a water source. Instead of swimming, they simply gallop or trot along the bottom of the water. Most of the time here at the zoo, I see them splitting their time between the upstream and downstream sources. Uh, and hippo trail is definitely worth the walk, if only to catch a glimpse of the hippo in his upstream area. The exhibit itself feels quite large through its use of verticality. The flowing river and winding path upwards provides many distinct zones for the hippo to enjoy while effectively utilizing the uneven ground made available for it. The lower viewing area also allows you to see the hippo in action underwater and is the optimal spot for viewing if that's where they're located. Next, we'll talk about the Western Lowland Gorilla here in Gorilla Forest. Now we come to the main attraction of Gorilla Forest, the Western Lowland Gorilla. Its scientific name, Gorilla, Gorilla, Gorilla. Yes, it is Gorilla three times in a row. The word Gorilla is Carthaginian in origin and translates roughly to Hairy Man. This is a pretty common theme among older names for the great apes as people look at them and see a lot of themselves, but hairier. They are apes, which means that they are larger and smarter than most monkeys, and have no tail. This particular species of gorilla is the most common subspecies, but is still presently endangered, primarily due to hunting and habitat loss. This is also the only species of gorilla in nearly every zoo on the planet. There's a few exceptions, but uh, you'll hear about those exceptions when you hear about those zoos. And their habitat is, of course, the award-winning gorilla forest, with four acres of land split into two outdoor exhibits and three indoor exhibits that form a ring around the viewing room. It almost serves as a reversal of classic exhibit design, where instead of the animals in a circular exhibit with humans all around, the humans are in the center and the gorillas are all around. In a sense, we are on exhibit for the gorillas to see. The gorillas certainly enjoy viewing us as much as we do them. There is a male gorilla here who has become enamored with cell phones and the keepers encourage you to show him photos and videos as part of his enrichment. He'll tap the glass when he's ready to see the next thing. Other things you can do to make your visit interesting for the gorillas include bringing a picture book or dressing in a fun costume. They always like to see new things and it helps make their day all that more varied and interesting. Regardless of what you choose to do, be sure to be respectful of these apes as you are a guest in their home. In keeping with the Louisville Zoo's philosophy on rotation, the gorillas here are regularly rotated between the different portions of their exhibit, making each day a new experience for them. Be sure to check all the available viewing areas before and after the indoor exhibit to make sure that you're able to locate them. 
I've even seen them perched high in the trees before. Next up, we'll move on to the Arctic areas, starting with the Siberian tiger. Starting off the Arctic area of the Louisville Zoo is the Siberian Tiger. Here the zoo calls it the Emir Tiger, and that is because there is quite a lot of question as to what constitutes a species or a subspecies or a sub-subspecies when it comes to tigers. As it currently stands, the Emir Tiger is a regional variant of the Tigris tigris subspecies which due to habitat destruction and plummeting populations has been separated from other populations. So there are four or five regional variants, one of which has since gone extinct, that uh, are recognized as variations on a subspecies. And these are purely due to being cut off from the other populations of tiger. This separation has gone on long enough that some experts have argued for assigning each population its own distinct subspecies. Here at the Louisville Zoo, there are two Amir tigers, a male and a female. The tiger is the largest of the big cats, reaching weights of well over 600 pounds in adult males. Their stripes function as camouflage to conceal their approach towards prey. Why, you might ask then, are they orange? For us, it's a very eye-catching color, one that we're likely to notice contrasted against the deep browns and greens of the jungle. The answer, of course, is that the prey that tigers hunt can only see a few different colors, and they see orange and green as the same color. So the tiger has the, all the advantages of being absolutely gorgeous, with none of the disadvantages. And so it appears green and black to the prey, and so blends in perfectly well into the forest. The tiger exhibit here makes excellent use of verticality. It has several nooks and caves that the tiger likes to take refuge in, a large pool at the bottom that I've seen it go swimming in, and plenty of space for it to roam around and mark its territory. Next up, after the Amir tiger, is the snow leopard. We're here at Snow Leopard Pass, looking at one of the Louisville Zoo's newest exhibits here. We had the privilege of talking with uh, one of the keepers in charge of the Snow Leopard Pass here. And we learned quite a few interesting things. I think one of the best things is that once again, the rotational philosophy of the Louisville Zoo shines here with the snow leopards as they have three separate exhibits that they're able to be rotated through. They have two that are in full view of patrons and one that allows the snow leopards a sort of day off to kick back and relax out of view of humans. The snow leopard's scientific name, Panthera unchia, means one panther. <laughs> I couldn't find the reason why, <laughs> but it is quite interesting. 
Snow leopards are native to the Himalayas and are some of the most agile animals in the animal kingdom. They make their living, so to speak, hunting mountain goats who are able to hop up the side of rocky cliffs and mountains. In order to enable these acrobatic feats, snow leopards can jump nearly 20 feet horizontally, which is truly an insane distance. I've measured my own jump and it's like three feet, and yet they can do it uh, with 20 feet of horizontal motion. That's why when you see a snow leopard exhibit, it's almost always going to have a fence because an open air exhibit for a snow leopard is just not practical. You'd have to be 20 feet away from them. It'd make it very difficult to see. This exhibit design not only gives us the opportunity to see them sunbathing overhead and relaxing in full view, but also allows us to see them walking right alongside the fence line, which gets us a lot closer than the 20 feet that an open air exhibit would necessitate. Obviously, one of the attractions of this exhibit are the pathways that the snow leopards can take to go overhead. And I think this is my favorite part of this new exhibit. It really immerses you, just like Colobus Crossing does, in the feeling of being surrounded by animals in ways that before now I've only truly felt at an aquarium. The snow leopard is, of course, one of John's top five favorite animals, and I'm grateful to have at least one of them here included at the Louisville Zoo. Moving on, we'll enter the main part of the Arctic exhibit, Glacier Run, and see our next friends, the polar bears. As you walk into Glacier Run, you'll see what appears to be a road collapsing into the ground that's blocked off. Don't worry, this doesn't mean that the polar bears have escaped, it's just part of the exhibit. Glacier Run is one of the newer exhibits here at Louisville Zoo, and it takes great care in combining the natural feel of what the animals would normally experience in their natural habitats with the encroachment of mankind on their homes. Because the biggest threat to polar bears, grizzly bears, and the other animals of Glacier Run is, in fact, people. This is well symbolized by the fact that um, they don't try to disguise that these polar bears are living right on the edge of humanity. Because in the north, where the polar bears live, in Canada, Greenland, they are being driven from their natural homes on the icebergs into the edge of towns, where they're starting to um, raid people's livestock people's garbage cans, and even uh, have encounters with actual people. The two kinds of bear that you can see in the main exhibits here at Glacier Run are the polar bear and the grizzly bear. The polar bear, Ursus maritimus, um, its scientific name translates to sea bear, which makes sense the polar bear lives effectively at sea in its natural environment on ice flows and icebergs in the North Pole. The grizzly bear Ursus arctos horribilis, or horrible arctic bear, <laughs> is interesting in that polar bears are really the arctic bear, but grizzly bears were the first ones that they discovered while heading north. So they're like, wow, this is the arctic bear. There are three subspecies uh, that are broadly referred to as brown bears. There's the Eurasian brown bear, which of course finds its native home in Europe and Asia. 
the grizzly bear, who finds his home here in North America, and the Kodiak bear, who lives in Northwest North America, especially uh, near Alaska, as their main home. They are named after Kodiak Island, uh, where they were first discovered. It does make you feel bad that the bear is named Horrible Cold Bear, but um, it is what it is. Sometimes scientists aren't always nice. The polar bear is the largest of all bears. It stands several feet taller than any other bear and can weigh almost a thousand pounds. When they're standing at their full height with their arms outstretched, polar bears are over 12 feet tall, which they look cute and cuddly when they're napping in the shade, but if you come face to face with one in the wild, you're not going to get very far. Unfortunately, polar bears are critically endangered due to climate change and habitat loss and are especially um, vulnerable as ice continues to melt in the North Pole. Uh, more and more of their natural habitat is lost. Um, polar bears have been driven so far south that they've begun to interbreed with grizzly bears, forming an entirely new species of bear, which is truly fascinating. Grizzly bears, on the other hand, are still doing relatively well so far. Um, they're not considered endangered, but they are still considered vulnerable. While they're not the largest or the smallest of the brown bear, the grizzly bear is certainly the most famous and is noted for his ability to wait at the top of waterfalls and catch salmon as they attempt to swim up a waterfall. I mean, it's hard enough to swim up a waterfall all on your own, but when there's a bear waiting for you at the top, I mean, hey, salmon, what's the point, man? I really appreciate the several exhibits here at the Louisville Zoo because they give the bears, once again, an opportunity to rotate through different environments. On our visit today, we saw a polar bear who looked like he was having a truly excellent dream. While on other visits, I've seen grizzly bears swimming in a large pond, chasing after a duck who was determined not to be captured. The keepers have told us that there is in fact a, a pair of ducks who have made their home here at Glacier Run and are completely unperturbed by the bears the seals, and all the other predators nearby. Next up, we'll go see the pinnipeds with the seals and sea lions. Next up, there are several different viewing areas for the seals and sea lions here at the Louisville Zoo. Collectively, and along with walruses, they are referred to as pinnipeds, which are marine mammals that uh, have taken on a sort of amphibious lifestyle. Pinnipeds are capable of moving around both on land and in water to some degree, uh, although some are more mobile on land than others. The question always arises when looking at seals and sea lions, how can you tell the difference? Which one is which? And there are a few things that uh, you can see for sure that will help you figure that out. First off, seals uh, tend to be a little rounder. They have a, a lot more blubber, uh, and so are, they tend to be able to live in farther north and farther south reaches. For example, the leopard seal is the primary predator of the penguin in Antarctica. You can see that um, their forward fins, or their forearms, are a lot less developed 
than the sea lions, and so they have a harder time moving around on land. Um, sea lions uh, walk or trot, whereas seals sort of bounce around on their belly when they're on land. So sea lions have retained a lot more of their land mobility than seals have. Seals are also able to dive underwater for much longer periods of time than sea lions can. All in all, seals are far more aquatic than sea lions. Here at the Louisville Zoo, they have the California sea lion as their sea lion representative, and they have both the gray seal and the harbor seal as their seal representatives. The California sea lion's scientific name is Zalophus californianus. The word Zalophus is Greek, referring to intensive crest, which refers to the sagittal crest on their foreheads. When they come out of the water, you'll see a raised ridge of skin going along their head onto their neck. And that is another thing that can help you identify a sea lion versus a seal, which lacks that said sagittal crest. The gray seal, whose scientific name is Halicoeris gripus, which translates to hooked-nosed sea pig, are the seals with the real floppy faces that you see swimming around. That's the easiest way to tell them apart from the harbor seal, which is Foca vitalina, which refers to their similarity in appearance to cattle calves. It can also translate to veal, but not to seal, interestingly. The three will typically be seen performing together in seal and sea lion shows. Be sure to check your zoo map or your zoo app to figure out what time you need to be down here for that. On today's visit while recording, we missed it by just about 15 minutes, which is a little disappointing, but that's an excellent time to learn lots of fun and new facts about the seals and sea lions. You'll see here too, the Louisville Zoo has several different pools that they are able to rotate the animals through. Although uh, the performance pool, while it appears to be split in two, they're able to swim underneath or over top as needed in order to get to the location that they'd like to be. They also have another pool uh, that is not visible to the public that gives them extra space to swim around and explore. The keeper training is so proficient and the animals are so good at doing what they're asked that keepers are able to do something as complex as giving them eye drops because of the training that they receive here. The Louisville Zoo is particularly proud of its training programs and is looking forward to reinstating more of those as the COVID-19 pandemic wanes. Moving on from our pinniped friends, we'll go to see the Stellar Sea Eagle. The penultimate exhibit here at Glacier Run is that of the Stellar Sea Eagle. It's built around a towering tree trunk, the back of which the keepers are able to climb up in order to inspect the nest at the top. When the eagles were nesting, they had a nest cam that you could watch live, and that may be something that happens again as the eagles uh, continue to be bred. Stellar Sea Eagle is the largest of the sea eagles and it is the heaviest eagle by weight, outweighing the golden eagle by a pound or two. 
on average, um, it's between 9 and 20 pounds. And its largest wingspan recorded was around 8 feet. Its scientific name, Haliaetus pelagicus, both uh, refers to the ocean and the sea. Interestingly, Halia referring to the ocean and Pelagicus referring to the sea. If you're having trouble spotting the stellar sea eagle, be sure to look all the way at the top on the left side where their nest is located. That's usually where I can spot them. It shares its exhibit indirectly with several other species of bird, interestingly all of which are from different regions. We have the azure-winged magpie, or cyanus. We have the red-breasted geese, or branta ruficollis, and the mandarin ducks, or Aix galericulata. Now, of course, these are separated from the stellar sea eagle by the same screen that separates the eagle from us, because these are all species that would be considered prey by said eagle. It's also an interesting way to construct an, ex an exhibit. To us, it looks like a small exhibit due to the very small amount of land that it takes up, but because the exhibit goes so high in the air, they're able to allow these birds to have much more vertical freedom than they would normally. Once again, it's a question of limiting the animal's freedom but giving it an open-air exhibit versus limiting its freedom through the exhibit but allowing it to move freely throughout. This is a question that is always being weighed and considered. For most birds, it is decided to allow them to retain their ability to fly and keep them in a confined space like this. But this is one of the better examples of an immersive eagle exhibit that I've seen at a zoo. Moving on, we'll see the final animal of Glacier Run, the snowy owl. The final exhibit here at Glacier Run is Harry Potter's favorite bird, the snowy owl. Here you can see Hedwig and her boyfriend hanging out in an exhibit that helps to distinguish day and night for them. Usually I see them perched either near the window or on the broad beam in the center of the exhibit. The snowy owl's Latin name, or scientific name, is Bubo scandiacus. Bubo is Latin uh, for the horned owl, and Scandiacus refers to the region of Scandinavia, um, where some snowy owls call home. However, they are found uh, across most of North America and most of Northern Europe as well, ranging into Russia, Greenland, Canada, and the United States, as well as their given name of Scandinavia. Unlike most owls, snowy owls are actually daytime hunters. They usually go after small prey and are most known for hunting lemmings when they are caught out in the open. Male and female owls are easily distinguished by their markings. Male owls have far few markings, being nearly perfectly white, whereas the female owls have far more black spots. This allows them to blend in with the rocks and ground that they make their nest in, um, giving them an advantage in the area of camouflage, while, like most birds, the male is more traditionally beautiful in an attempt to attract mates with his decadent plumage. Owls are unique among raptors in that they are able to fly silently through the air 
without making a sound even when flapping their wings. They use this to their advantage when searching for prey. However, because of their silent flight, their feathers had to be unwaterproofed in order for that to happen. Uh, so while most birds can stand getting wet and are even able to fly in rain, owls, including the snowy owl, are not able to fly if their feathers are too wet. So you won't see an owl flying around in the middle of a thunderstorm. Now we're going to move on to Australia. The first section of the Australia exhibits here at the Louisville Zoo is lorikeet landing, where you can see two subspecies of the rainbow lorikeet, or Trichoglossus molicanus. Its scientific name, Trichoglossus, refers to the rough tongue that it has, which you will certainly feel if you are able to go inside of the exhibit and feed them the cups of nectar that are provided. The second part of its name, molicanus, means flower or meal and appears to be in reference to their multicolored uh, feathers. The two subspecies are Swinson's lorikeet and the green-naped lorikeet and these are very friendly birds. In my time here as a volunteer at the Louisville Zoo, I worked for several weeks with the bird departments and helped many visitors enjoy their experience here with the lorikeets. A lot of people don't give smaller birds like the lorikeets the credit they deserve, but after even just working with them for several days, they and I began to develop a rather close relationship. They would be excited when I would come in and um, were much more willing to approach me than they had been initially. I will give the advice uh, to most people I'm a flip-flops guy myself, but uh, these guys, they like to, when they are done with their meal of nectar, they like to pick at the hairs on your skin, and um, I've had several riding along on my feet trying to pick at my toenails, which it's not painful because they're so small that they can't really do any harm, but it is a little uncomfortable. The last time I was in an exhibit with all of these birds, I had about 20 of them <laughs> on me, and I'm sure I'll post a picture of that at some point. While the birds here at the Louisville Zoo are lorikeets, there's another similar bird called lorries, and it's important to note the difference. Lorries tend to be slightly larger and have a blunt end to their tails, whereas lorikeets are slightly smaller, and as you can see, have a rather pointed end to their tails. That helps you determine that these are, in fact, lorikeets here at Lorikeet Landing. But this is certainly another great immersive experience here at the Louisville Zoo, as is the rest of Australia, as we move along to the Wallaroo walkabouts. The second part of Louisville Zoo's Australia area is the Wallaroo Walkabout. While it's closed right now because of COVID-19, it's certainly an enjoyable experience for those who are able to go in. There's a nice winding path that leads through an open field where you have multiple wallabies and wallaroos 
chilling out and laying around. If you're lucky, they may come close enough to the path that you can actually interact with them. It's important to remember, and this goes for all zoo animals, that they are on a very specific and limited diet. So if they do come up to interact with you, it's uh, just so they can shake hands and get some belly rubs, not so they can get a snack. Will they beg for a snack? Absolutely. But should you give it to them? Under no circumstances. The diets here at the Louisville Zoo, and in all zoos, are very carefully calibrated to an animal's nutritional needs, and we don't want to go making them sick and giving us veterinarians more work to do. You can see two species of small kangaroo here. There's the red-necked wallaby, Macropus rufagricius, and the common wallaroo, Macropus robustus. As you can see, the difference between wallabies and wallaroos is simply in the name. However, their first name, Macropus, is interesting, as kangaroos and their ilk are broadly referred to as macropods, or Bigfoots. So, all the myths about Bigfoot living in the Pacific Northwest are untrue. It turns out he's been living in Australia all along. This, of course, refers to their large feet, which they use to hop around in their exhibits and natively in the wild. And they can deliver a truly powerful kick. Also in this exhibit, you'll see, wandering around the edges, several larger Australian birds. The first, and of course the largest, is the emu, Dromaeus novehaliandiae, uh, which refers to New Holland, a former name of Australia. And Dromaeus, similar to the dromedary camel, refers to the emu's high speed when running. An interesting fact about emus is that they once engaged in a war with the Australian military and came out victorious. It turns out, however, it was a Pyrrhic victory, as over 2,000 emus were killed, and the Australians only gave up because they ran out of bullets. That is a true fact. Look it up on Wikipedia. You can also see the Cape Bearing Goose here wandering around. You can see the Laughing Kookaburra and the Tawny Frogmouth and the structure in the center and their own separate enclosures. The Walkabout is, once again, an excellently immersive exhibit that brings you into direct contact with animals, of course, as long as they're willing. That's the great thing about the Australia area, is nearly every animal is able to come into direct contact with the visitors here at the zoo, or you can come very close to it. I wouldn't recommend petting the emus, though. They are, after all, warriors. As you make your way out of Australia and head on out, don't forget to stop by the restrooms, as it'll be a while before we see one again. I'll see you guys at the Guanacos. Here at the beginning of the Americas section, we have the guanaco. The guanaco is another camelid. Uh, it is most closely related to, of course, camels. An interesting fact is that llamas are in fact the domesticated descendants of ancient wild guanacos. Llamas have been domesticated for about 6,500 years. 
and have been bred mostly for their milk, wool, and meat. However, plenty of guanaco still exist in the wild, so it's interesting to see how different the domesticated llama is from the wild guanaco. This is reflected in its name, scientifically, llama guanicoe, which is, of course, llama and guanaco. Just like camels, they have a special kind of red blood cell that allows them to survive in low water environments, such as in very mountainous areas where one might have a hard time finding a stream, pond, lake, or river to drink from. When traversing mountainous environments, this is very important and also allows them to make sure that they are staying oxygenated at such high altitudes. It seems as though camelids are the perfect pack animal for extreme heat, cold, or altitude. Thanks, guanacos. Next, we move on to everyone's favorite North American cat, well, South American cat, the jaguar. Next up, and still in South America, we have the jaguar. It's possibly one of the best big cats out there. And in fact, the only panther that is in North or South America. Its scientific name, Panthera onca, refers to the group it belongs to, the panthers, and onca being a Portuguese word for, pan for jaguar. Its English name, Jaguar, is derived from the name given to it by an indigenous peoples of South America. And there he is right now, announcing his presence. I'll let him speak for a moment. Thank you, Jaguar. The indigenous people's name, and I apologize if I mispronounce this, is Tupi Guarani, and they called it the Yaguara. As you can see, Jaguar, and that sound very similar. So it's nice to see that the original name given to the jaguar is the one that's truly stuck. As we're recording right now, the jaguar is staring us down with its beautiful face and unique spot pattern. Jaguars and leopards, at first glance, are very similar looking, but you'll see on the jaguar that there are certain circles of spots or groups of spots that have a spot in the center. And this is what marks the jaguar as different from all the leopards that live around it. While the leopards may have that same circular pattern, it does not have the dot in the middle, like jaguars do. And that's the easiest way to tell them apart. The other way to tell them apart is to ask yourself, what continent am I on? Is this Eurasia and Africa, or is this South America? As jaguars are exclusively living in Central and South America. I know. As we can see today, this kiddo is quite vocal indeed. The jaguar, in terms of big cats, is one of the most versatile as it finds itself well at home both in the treetops and on the ground, is an excellent swimmer, and has taken well to adapting to human civilization. Jaguars are still a feared menace in many cities, and that contributes a lot to difficulty with conservation efforts of the jaguar. Right now, they're not considered critically endangered, but 
if the current rate of jaguar population decline continues, there will be more serious cause for concern. Here at the Louisville Zoo, while the jaguar has a relatively small exhibit, it does have plenty of places to tuck itself away into, and can often be found either right near the front of the exhibit, or right near the back amongst the bamboo along the back wall. Next up, we'll take a quick look at some famous American birds. The first bird we're going to be looking at is the hyacinth macaw, titular hero of the movie Rio. These birds have sadly gone extinct in the wild, in part due to deforestation and habitat loss, in part due to their incredible beauty, uh, so they are both hunted and captured to be used as pets. Now there's significant debate as to whether Parrots make good pets, um, and that's not a debate I intend to weigh in on here, but it's certainly of note that parrots have a very, very long lifespan. Hyacinth macaws in particular can live 70 to 90 years, which is essentially the same as the human lifespan. So if you have a parrot, you have yourself a companion for life. While not quite as intelligent and vocal as, say, the African grey, Macaws still have a wide variety of sounds that they make. He appears to be laughing at me in the background as I discuss him. Watching parrots move through their exhibits is often interesting, as they will usually use their beak as a third appendage for getting around, in conjunction with their two claws. Their scientific name, Andorinchus hyacinthinius, um, is quite descriptive indeed. Of course, the hyacinthinius in, ref in reference to the bright blue coloration that they exhibit. And andorinchus refers to the smooth, large, curved beak that you can observe on the macaws. That very same beak which they use to climb around in their exhibit. Next up from Rio, we're heading to Chile to see the flamingos. Here we have another dual exhibit where you can see both Chilean flamingos and the crested screamer. Of course, the flamingos are far more numerous than the screamer, uh, in part due to their popularity and in part due to the fact that in the wild they live in massive flocks. Here you can see them, some straining the water through their teeth uh, for food, some resting up on one foot with their head tucked back, Others uh, bathing as they paddle around in the pond, almost like a duck or a swan. The Chilean flamingo's scientific name, Phenicopterus chilensis, roughly translates to red-feathered bird from Chile, which is very accurate indeed. As is well known, their red coloration comes from the food that they eat, and so it's important here at the zoo that that diet is replicated in order to get that iconic pink and red hue. That food in question is, in fact, shrimp. 
Now, people don't turn pink if they eat too many shrimp, uh, except my one friend who is allergic to shrimp. The Crested Screamer, as you can hear in the backgrounds, possibly, likes to make a loud noise. His scientific name, Chana Torquata, means spongy bearer of collar. Spongy, and reference to the air sacs present in the skin of this species. So if you touch his skin with your bare hand, you'll hear a crackling sound, almost like the sound of bubble wrap being popped. These cutaneous air sacs help the bird appear larger while remaining light and able to fly, as all birds must balance um, their size with their ability to achieve takeoff in a reasonable time. Now, this is an example of birds who the zoo deemed uh, would thrive better in an open exhibit. And so these birds have their wings clipped as so not to be able to fly away. It is a painless procedure involving the tips of their feathers, or the feathers on the tips of their wings being removed. These are the feathers that allow them to achieve liftoff when they're flapping their wings. As they stand now, they could certainly get some lift, but not enough to get over the low fence. This allows the exhibit to both be large and wide and be very full of birds. And it feels as though we're standing right next to them as they feed in their pond. However, there is still no danger of them escaping from their containment. Next up, we'll go see the sloth in all of its adorable glory. Next up, we have a cultural favorite here in the U.S., Linnaeus's Two-Toed Sloth. Our scientific name is Coloepus didactylus, and this is, if a bit mean, perhaps an appropriate name. Coloepus is Greek for lame foot and refers to sloth's inability to effectively use their feet for locomotion. Poor things. And their second name, didactylus, refers to their two fingers. Now, all sloths have three fingers on each of their toes, but the two-toed sloth is distinguished by its two toes on its forelimbs. Sloths are excellent at climbing and have some of the biggest claws uh, in terms of the claw-to-size ratio. They have, in fact, the biggest claws in the animal kingdom. They're only rivaled in size by those of the giant anteater. Sloths, in general, are, frankly, very bad at what they do. Because sloths primarily eat a diet made of leaves, they have to have a very long digestive tract in order to digest this because the leaves they eat are very high in a plant matter known as cellulose. Unlike the colobus monkey who has gut microbiota that assist in digestion and a multi-chambered stomach to specialize in this, the sloth does not and so when it's not eating or sleeping it's simply sitting around to digest its food. Some of the leaves it eats in the wild even have toxic compounds which can cause its brain to shrink. So the poor sloth just gets it from every end. Sloths cannot go to the bathroom while they are in trees because of the angle at which they hold themselves. So they have to climb down trees in order to defecate. 
However, because of how slowly they digest, they only need to do this every few days or so. And the way my body works, I kind of wish I had that ability of a sloth. Sloths don't necessarily have any camouflage on their own, but they do move so slowly and live such a sedate lifestyle that in the wild they often get covered with moss, algae, or lichen, giving them somewhat of a natural barrier. <laughs> Sloths, even in the animal kingdom, are regarded as easy prey, and it has been documented that harpy eagles will leave sloths alive in order to train their young how to hunt, because sloths are such an easy target that all they're really good for is teaching your young fledgling how to fly and how to fight. Nevertheless, humans love sloths, because honestly, they're so cute and so relatable. If all I could do was eat, sleep, and digest my food, then man, you best believe I would do it. I do love sloths, even if they are bad at what they do. Next up, we'll look at a strange looking dog, the maned wolf. Next up, we have the Maine Wolf, or its scientific name, Chrysocyon brachyurus. This roughly translates to gold dog with a short tail. And indeed, the Maine Wolf does appear to have a much shorter tail than the rest of its limbs. However, it's less that his tail is super short, which it is a little short, and more that his legs are very, very long. See, Maine wolves are native to some grasslands in South America where the grass can grow very high. They use their long legs to give them an advantage when spotting prey. Maine wolves are among the most solitary of canines and rarely join into large groups. They've lost a lot of their habitat due to deforestation for agricultural purposes, as much of their grassland is also ideal farmland. And so, of course, like many of the species here at the Little Zoo, they are endangered. As you're walking by, and perhaps even when you were walking into the zoo, you might smell that distinctive skunky odor that is characteristic of the Maine wolf. It is perhaps one of the more odorous animals at the zoo, and it uses that to mark its territory, which is interesting since there are two Maine wolves on exhibit here. Uh, they each take turns spending time in the larger exhibit, and I have to imagine that smelling the other wolves' scent markings will cause them to mark even more, which is probably why the smell is so pungent as a whole. Maine wolves are, although not closely related to gray wolves, still part of the canine family along with gray wolves, foxes, and dogs, and they almost appear to be really leggy foxes, or foxes on stilts as the sign says. Moving on, we will see the symbol of freedom itself, the bald eagle. Next up, our final American bird is the bald eagle. 
as I'm sure almost everyone knows, it is the national animal of America. But a lesser known fact is that Benjamin Franklin, one of our more famous founding fathers, wanted the national animal of America to be the turkey. Now, it's certainly the national animal of Thanksgiving, but I think we can agree that the bald eagle's majesticness deserves to win in the end. In the United States, it is a federal crime to harm bald eagles in any way, shape, or form. So any zoos that are hosting bald eagles are not allowed to clip their wings. However, the bald eagles here at the Louisville Zoo were injured in the wild through various reasons and in their recovery process were unable to reacquire the ability to fly, which is why here at the Louisville Zoo they're able to be housed in an open-air bald eagle exhibit, which is a rarity among zoos. Despite that, they still have plenty of ways to get around their exhibit with lots of branches to climb on, trees, and of course a lovely shelter to protect them from the elements. The bald eagle is very closely related to stellar sea eagle um, and can be distinguished specifically by its bald head. This is indicated in its scientific name, Haliaetus leucocephalus, meaning sea eagle with a white head. They're also distinguishable from stellar sea eagles by a slightly more severe curve on the tip of their beak. The bald eagle is a very popular symbol. It's my dad's favorite bird. It's one of my friend's favorite birds. Um, but sadly, <laughs> it has had a lot of issues with breeding and conservation. A few years ago, they were starting to notice an issue with bald eagles where their eggshells were too soft. Due to the effect of them being predators, toxins began to accumulate in their system that would dissolve part of the eggshells as they were laid, and so the bald eagles would be accidentally crushing their own eggs underfoot. New regulations have somewhat alleviated this problem, but it's still very important to avoid using particularly toxic pesticides, bug sprays, and that sort of thing when you're going out into the wilderness, because those things eventually find their way up the food chain into loved and cherished animals like the bald eagle. While it's recovering well today, it's still not out of danger. And it's important to remember that our national symbol is just as much in threat as many of the other animals that seem so much further off. Next up, we'll see a couple of America's small cats, even though they're larger than my house cats, the puma and the lynx. Next up is the Canada lynx, or its scientific name, lynx canadensis. This of course means Canada lynx. The lynx has several distinguishing features that help mark it differently than other cats. First off, it has pointy tufts on the tips of its ears, usually dark in color. This is one of the easiest ways to tell that we're dealing with a lynx as opposed to some other form of wildcats. Lynx also have large padded feet that act as a sort of snowshoe. Given that they are endemic to Canada and parts of the northern United States, including much of Alaska, they are often encountering snow while pursuing prey. 
and these snowshoe-like paw pads allow them to move quickly through the snow and near silently, not quite as silently as the flight of an owl, but very close. Finally, they have a short tail, a bob's tail, some might refer to, which is why some refer to the lynx in the United States as the bobcat. While it doesn't have quite as many names as the puma, which we'll get to shortly, this has led to some confusion and people calling it the bobcat, the wildcat, the lynx, etc. Just remember, if it's got the pointy ears, short tail, and snowshoe feet, it's a lynx that you're looking at. The Louisville Zoo exhibit here provides a nice verticality for the lynx, giving it plenty of spots to perch up high, whether it be along the back wall or up the logs and on the side of the stone. Today, the lynx is hiding behind the boulder in the right corner. We can just see their pretty little head with the notable tufts. Next up, we'll look at the puma. Our final cat here in the Americas is the puma. The puma has the dubious distinction of going by over 200 different names depending on the region. I'll read a few of those now. Cougar, panther, catamounts, catamountain, mountain lion, mountain cat, leopard, jaguar, both of which are patently incorrect, painter, painted cat, Indian ghost, deer tiger, red tiger, mountain ghost, or American lion. Puma's scientific name, <laughs> interestingly, is also up for debate, but is presently settled on Puma concolor. Puma, of course, in reference to its English name, and concolor in reference to the singular color on the whole of its body. The puma, in lieu of roaring, as it is technically not a big cat, it is the largest of the small cats, um, it has a scream that sounds like a woman being murdered. Now, I am unlikely to be able to record that here at the zoo, as they don't do it very often, but if it's something that you hear in the woods, keep in mind that may not be Aunt Gertrude, that may just be a puma hollering for some reason. Pumas, as I said, are technically small cats, although they are the largest of any small cats. In addition, they have the widest spread nat natural geographic range of any feline outpacing even larger cats like tigers, lions, leopards, and jaguars. The puma is the most widespread cat, other than probably the domestic cat. Next up, we'll head into the MetaZoo, a part that's often overlooked here at the Louisville Zoo. One of the hidden gems here at the Louisville Zoo is the MetaZoo. Be sure to stop by there on your way from the Cats of the Americas to the Herp Aquarium. Here in the MetaZoo, you can see all of the animals who are representatives of the Louisville Zoo's conservation programs. Uh, and these are the animals that you will often be able to encounter um, 
out and amongst the crowd being handled by a zookeeper. Usually these are the guys that end up getting loved on and petted by many of the people here visiting the zoo. At the time of recording, that's not something that's happening right now. And in addition, they are renovating part of the MetaZoo, the part that normally hosts the native species of Kentucky's ponds and rivers. So we won't be talking too much about them. A couple species of note here in the MetaZoo I'd like to point out. The first one is the long-tailed chinchilla, scientific name chinchilla lanagera, meaning woolly chinchilla. This specific chinchilla is the ancestor of all domestic chinchillas, which I find quite interesting. But the true piece de resistance of the MetaZoo is the black-footed ferret. The Louisville Zoo has been heavily involved in the conservation success of the black-footed ferret. Its scientific name is Mustela nagripis, which roughly translates to, believe it or not, black-footed ferret. This rare species is also known as the American polecat or prairie dog hunter. In a rare case of conservational success, the black-footed ferret has made a remarkable recovery in the wild after being devastated by plague. Yes, plague, caused by the same agent as the bubonic plague in humans. You might know it better as the black plague, um, or its bacterial name Yersinia pestis. And it's also been affected by dwindling populations of prairie dogs, which they are the primary hunters of in the wild, due to habitat loss and poisoning by humans. By the year 1979, the black-footed ferret was thought to be extinct. However, in 1981, a small wild population was discovered, and a national breeding effort was begun. The Louisville Zoo was then, and still is, heavily involved in these conservation efforts. And as of this recording, have cared for over 1,700 kits, or baby ferrets, releasing nearly 700 of these into the wild. There are now set four separate populations in the wild, presently totaling over 1,000 ferrets, which is an incredible recovery for something that was once thought to be extinct in the wild. While this species is still considered endangered, it's certainly more stable than it has been, and remains an excellent case study in the importance of zoos. After this, we're going to be taking the quick walk down to the Herp Aquarium, where there are quite a number of interesting creatures for us to learn about. I'll see you there. Coming into the Herp Aquarium here, we have numerous species of fish, reptiles, and amphibians for us to observe. One of my favorite games to play here at the Herp Aquarium, and in many zoo buildings, is Spot the Critter. I like to do this with my nephews, where we go through and try and see if we can locate each animal in each little enclosure. That being said, that's a hard thing to do over audio. Instead, I'll be discussing what I think are the most interesting species hosted here at the Herp Aquarium. The first species I want to draw your attention to is the black piranha, or the Cerasalmus rhombius, translating roughly to rhombus-shaped saw salmon. This is also known as the red, white, spotted, or yellow piranha, indicating that uh, while it's called the black piranha generally, it is in fact a quite colorful fish. They're typically about a foot long and six pounds or so. The typical idea of a piranha is a fish that 
swims in a large group, and will attack any meat source that enters into its river. But this is actually not true for most piranhas, and this fish is a good example of that. This particular species is what we call an opportunistic omnivore, meaning it will eat whatever it can get its fins on, including plants, fallen fruit, other smaller fish, and the carcasses of larger animals. In addition, they might nip chunks of scale or fin off of larger fish. This is why it's alone in its tank, which is appropriate for this specific species of piranha, as it's typically solitary in the wild. It can also be rather timid out in the wild, and so will adapt to different niches with less resistance if pressured. This means that if a fish comes in and starts eating its particularly favorite food source, instead of putting up a fight, it'll just switch to the next available food source, making it a very adaptable fish. However, despite this, it has a very powerful bite, and some have proposed that this particular species be used in fish-based home security systems. As far as I know, we've stopped using moats to protect our home, but I guess you never know. Maybe a black piranha is what you need to keep your valuables safe. Moving on, we're going to look at the prized American alligator here at the Louisville Zoo. The scientific name of the American alligator is Alligator Mississippiensis, meaning Mississippi alligator, which is appropriate as they are quite common throughout the lower half of the Mississippi River. This particular specimen, who has been named King Louis, after, of course, the king who Louisville itself was named for, is an albino alligator. You can tell that he's an albino as opposed to just a white alligator by his red eyes. There is another kind of white alligator that has blue eyes, but is not considered properly albino. Because of their lack of natural camouflage, albino animals often suffer in the wild, so King Louis is definitely better off in the safe hands of his keepers. The American alligator as a species is the largest of the alligators on average, although it is dwarfed by several species of crocodiles. On average, they are around 350 pounds, but have been recorded up to 800 pounds, and are typically between 10 and 12 feet long. Contrary to popular myth, alligators do in fact stop growing, usually after about 20 years. This is good news for the keepers here at the Louisville Zoo, as gators live 10 to 15 more years in captivity. King Louis, if he never stopped growing, would be very large indeed. Across the walkway from King Louis' enclosure, you can see the only other species of alligator in the world, the Chinese alligator, known locally as the Muddy Dragon, which is a very cool name. Its Latin name, Alligator sinensis, means, go figure, Chinese alligator. I think I'll stick with Muddy Dragon myself. This species is critically endangered, with less than 300 individuals remaining. As of the time of this recording, the Louisville Zoo is preparing for their Halloween event, and this season's Halloween event is in fact a fundraiser for this specific species. So if you're interested in helping to conserve the Chinese alligator, be sure to visit this year's Boo at the Zoo. Moving on, we'll see what I feel is one of the most interesting specimens here at the Louisville Zoo. Not because of what species it is, but because of this particular individual. I'm of course talking about the reticulated python. Its scientific name, Meleopython reticulatus, um, refers to its native home 
of Malaysia, the fact that it's a python, and its reticulated pattern. By weight, this is the third largest snake in the world, and is widely considered the longest snake alive today, with the largest recorded length exceeding 10 meters, or 33 feet. This measurement was never firmly verified, but even more reliable sources exceed the length of any other snake. This specimen here at the zoo is particularly special, however. In 2014, our python here, named Thelma, laid a clutch of eggs without ever having recorded contact with a male. The keepers weren't too surprised by this, as sometimes snakes will lay eggs that haven't been fertilized and they just don't hatch. Or, rare, but it still happened, female pythons can store the sperm of male snakes to use in the future. So, just for fun, they decided to go ahead and incubate these eggs, just to see what would happen. After incubation, the eggs hatched into healthy baby pythons. Of course, the keepers were quite surprised to see these six little babies, and a lot of questions were asked and would soon be answered. After doing some genetic testing on samples from these babies, they were in fact revealed to be clones of the mother snake, meaning that this snake was able to reproduce asexually, which is the first recorded instance of this happening in the reticulated python. This is known as parthenogenesis, meaning birth from one. And this proud mama, because of this fact, is one of my Louisville Zoo highlights. Across the way from Thelma here, we can see Romulus, the Louisville Zoo's Komodo dragon. The scientific name of the Komodo dragon is Varanus komodoensis. Varanus is Arabic for lizard beast, which is certainly an appropriate name and Komodoensis refers to its island home of Komodo. The Komodo dragon is the largest of the monitor lizards, which on their own are the largest of all lizards. They can be up to 10 feet long and as much as 150 pounds. As you can see, Romulus here has a lot of growing to do. It is hotly debated whether the bite of the Komodo dragon is venomous. However, what we do know for sure is that it contains an anticoagulant, meaning that once a Komodo dragon has bitten its prey, and they aren't going to stop bleeding unless they receive medical attention. When my uncle was serving in the United States Navy, he spent some time stationed in Australia, and they gave them very specific instructions for how to deal with an attacking Komodo dragon. See, Komodo dragons are hunters, and they prefer to take down their prey themselves. Um, so what you're supposed to do is lay flat on the ground and let them just run over top of you. Which seems pretty scary to me, but I'm sure the U.S. Navy knows what they're talking about. My uncle was told that if he were to remain standing and just stand still, instead of going around him, the Komodo dragon was liable to climb over him, and its long serrated claws are sure to do a lot of damage if it does something like that. Now you know, folks, if a Komodo dragon charges you, you better lay down. Next up, we have the Sheltapusic, or as it's more commonly known, the glass lizard. This is one of my favorite scientific names, Pseudopus apotus, meaning fake legs, no legs. <laughs> this lizard is in fact aptly named as it has no legs, but is still a lizard rather than a snake. Like some other lizard species, it is capable of detaching its tail when threatened through a process called autotomy. This severed tail then can break itself into several pieces, hence the name glass lizard, as its tail seems to shatter like glass. 
I like this guy in particular because it calls to mind the biblical tale of the serpent who was punished for tempting man with the loss of his legs. Here's a creature that has not only lost its legs, but certainly once had them sometime in the past. Now that's neat. The last critter we're going to talk about here at the Herp Aquarium is, of course, the vampire bats. Specifically, this species of the common vampire bat. Its scientific name, Desmodus rotundus, means two-thirds of the way around, perhaps referring to its semi-spherical shape. This bat is one of three bat species that are hematophagic, meaning that they only feed on blood. All three species of vampire bats are native to Central or South America, so perhaps some new vampire mythology is in order. Sorry, Transylvania. In addition to flying, they have the option to walk, run, and jump, which helps them navigate across their victims with ease. They can also identify their prey by listening to them breathe, and will often return to the same victim night after night. Spooky. And perhaps appropriate, given that we're recording shortly before the Halloween event begins. As you finish making your way through the Herp Aquarium, keep in mind we'll meet you next at the Island's Pavilion and talk about a different kind of bat. See you there. Coming into the island's pavilion here, I feel that this is a good time to note that the buildings here at the Louisville Zoo follow the general design of the rest of the zoo, and that they are simply small circular paths that deposit you at the end of the path, right near where you entered it, allowing you to continue through the zoo in one smooth motion rather than having to go back over territory that you've already covered. I really appreciate this aspect of the Louisville Zoo. Making your way into the pavilion here, you'll see on your right many different bird exhibits. But what I want to draw your attention to is off to the left, where you will see the Rodriguez fruit bats. Its scientific name, Terapus rodricensis, meaning Rodriguez wingfoot, is quite appropriate, as the bat's wings are attached both to their forelimbs and hind limbs. They're also known as flying foxes. And these large bats are a stark contrast to the tiny bloodsuckers that we just saw. These bats are distinguished from other so-called flying foxes by the gold ring of fur around their neck. Like most species of bats, they are quite sociable and live in large groups, which is why you'll see so many here at the zoo. Their population in the wild now numbers around 20,000 after intense conservation efforts. But because they only natively live on one island, this species is still considered endangered. An interesting point of note about this species of bat is that it was the first species of bat to be successfully bred in a zoo environment. We'll touch on that more in our episode on the Philadelphia Zoo. Moving along, you will find yourself able to enter the large aviary, where there are many birds that are free to fly in the open space around you. While you have the opportunity to come into close contact with these birds, I would advise avoiding direct physical contact with them. Once you've made your way through the aviary, on your way out, you'll see one of my particular favorites, mostly because it's cute. I'm talking, of course, about the Brazilian porcupine, or the Coindu prehensilis. Coindu 
is an old Tupi word for porcupine. And the word porcupine itself means spike pig, which seems appropriate if you get a close look at their face. They have almost a pig-like snout. The second part of their scientific name, prehensilis, refers to the fact that this species of porcupine has a prehensile tail. Its spikeless tail is an extra limb to assist with their arboreal lifestyle, living up in the trees, in addition to their four clawed hands that are designed for grasping. They only grew to be about 10 pounds, but because of their long tail, they can be almost three and a half feet long. Half of that length is taken up by their tail. When in danger, they will roll into a spiky ball with its soft tail tucked inside. It's a myth that porcupines are able to shoot out their quills, but they do detach very easily and so are likely to remain stuck in predators attempting to get an easy meal. These can be very hard to remove on their own, as putting pressure on them will only cause them to sink in deeper. And so, without help from something with thumbs, like a human, you're unlikely to get those spikes out easily. At this point, I should note that you'll be seeing the Gein's Room, which is part of the island's rotational exhibit. You might want to pause and look up my section on the orangutan, Siamang, babarusa, tiger, or tapir, which I will be recording for a later section with the rest of the island's exhibits. But for now, we'll move on to the animals that I can say for sure you will be able to see. First being the African penguin. Its name in science is Sphaniscus demersus, which means diving wedge. This particular species of penguin is the only one native to Africa, making its home around the waters of the Cape of Good Hope and South Africa. It's distinguished by the pink spots right above its eyes, which help to regulate the varied temperatures that it will encounter in its native range. This species often experiences much warmer weather than most penguins because of its home in the more temperate Africa. It is also known as the jackass penguin due to the loud donkey sounds that it sometimes makes. While many penguins make this sound, this one is the most well known for it. Beaches where these birds nest are popular tourist destinations. And while this affords the penguins some protection from predators, humans end up causing them more problems than we solve. Sadly, populations for this bird are rapidly declining, despite some conservation efforts in place. And it is expected to be extinct in the wild, unless some change is made by 2026. Like most penguins, they do like to live in very large groups. And they establish what we refer to as colonies, where they will do most of their nesting, breeding, and feeding. These are those popular tourist destinations that we were talking about before, and it's these colonies that we have to protect if we have any hope of saving this species. Here at the zoo, they share their exhibit with the Inca tern. You can probably see the terns perched at the very top of the exhibit, but watch out as they are free to fly throughout the exhibit, and you might even see them on the rocks behind you as you look at the penguins. These birds, although from South America, are used to coexisting with different species of penguins in the wild and are perfectly happy to share exhibit space. Moving on to the last room here in the island's pavilion, you'll see the Cuban crocodile. Its scientific name, Crocodilus rhombifer, roughly means rhombus-bearing pebbleworm, pebbleworm being the meaning of the word crocodile. It's particularly appropriate for the Cuban crocodile as they have the most pebble-like scales. You can see they look very rough and knobbly on their surface. They're medium-sized for a crocodile, usually about 7 feet long and around 200 pounds. Smaller than King Louis, who we saw before, although he's an alligator. For its size, it has the longest and strongest legs of any crocodile, and is quite mobile on land. 
Due to this fact, it has been far more dangerous to humans than most crocodiles typically are. They are thought to be highly intelligent, and some captive populations have even been observed engaging in pack hunting behavior. This calls to mind the extinct, as they are known in popular culture, cheetah gators, which were essentially alligators with great mobility on land. This pack hunting behavior is consistent with fossil records that show it preying on megafauna like the giant sloth. It is listed, presently, as critically endangered, primarily due to hunting in its home, and has a massively reduced natural habitat. Breeding programs are underway, but because we haven't done many studies on this population in the wild, more information is needed to truly determine its status and to decide how best to proceed with conservation efforts. Now we will talk about the rotational exhibit here at the islands, but I'll see you guys outside. Here at the islands exhibit, the animals are always rotating, but you might see now the orangutan, or Pongo abelii. This is the scientific name specifically of the Sumatran orangutan, which refers to the western scientist Clark Abel, who is the first to describe the orangutans, and the name of the first orangutan he met, Pongo. I'd like to think that he asked what exactly he was looking at, and they told him, oh, that's Pongo. And he was like, all right, that must be a pongo. Here at the Louisville Zoo, there are four orangutans that you might see on exhibit. Two of them, Segundo and Bella, are Sumatran orangutans, whereas Teak and Amber are hybrids between the Sumatran and Bornean orangutans. The zoo is trying, yet unsuccessfully, to breed a purebred Sumatran orangutan between Segundo and Bella. Of course, they haven't had any luck. The word orangutan itself is a melee word, or a combination of two words rather, meaning forest and person, orang and utan, which seems fitting. The orangutan is the most arboreal of the great apes, making large nests in the trees where they like to sleep. They're one of the species that is most threatened by palm oil products, unfortunately, as most of their ancestral habitats have been wiped out to make room for plantations. No native trees means the orangutans have no safe homes. If you'd like to do something about this, I advise you to look up the Roundtable on Sustainable Palm Oil, or RSPO, and only support companies and products that are certified by this organization to ensure you are not bringing undue harm to orangutans and other tropical species with your purchases. It's important to remember that while palm oil plantations do cause a lot of trouble for native species, palm oil is by far the most sustainable plant oil in terms of the amount of water that it takes, the amount of space that it takes up, and the amount of time that it takes to produce. So palm oil plantations, while difficult, are certainly important in a more sustainable global economy. By supporting these specific companies that are certified, we're ensuring that they are committing to sustainable environmental practices and farming that is not going to cause any extra harm to the animals more than has already been done. But let's get back to the exhibit at hand. Here at the zoo, the orangutans have plenty of space 
throughout the various exhibits that you might see them in. Be sure to check all the corners, crevices, and high ledges for them. They seem to love little kids as well, so if you have little ones with you, encourage them to get up close and personal with these hairy, hairy guys. Next up, we'll talk about the Siamang. Here at the islands, the animals are always rotating the exhibits. Right now, you might be seeing the Siamang. Its scientific name, Symphalangus syndactylus, is in reference to the joining of its second and third toes via a membrane. This is one of the features that distinguishes the Siamang from the other gibbons. The Siamang is the largest species of gibbons, one of the lesser apes. Lesser apes are larger and smarter than the average monkey but smaller in size and wit to the great apes. The Siamang, as the largest gibbon, is up to twice the size of other gibbons. They still max out around 3 feet tall and 30 pounds. Their other main distinguishing feature is their large throat pouch, which amplifies their hooting calls and can inflate up to the size of their head. If you hear a big monkey hollering, it's certainly the Siamang here at the islands. While they like figs the most in terms of food, they will eat many different fruits and plants, up to 160 different kinds in the wild, and seem to enjoy eating leaves more than any other gibbon does. Some Siamangs have been known to be monogamous, and the children of such pairs usually receive more care from the father. Interestingly, the Siamangs here at the Louisville Zoo were all hand-raised by the zookeepers as both of their parents died from sepsis shortly after birth. Quite sad. These are by far the youngest Siamangs to have been hand-raised at any zoo. If you're looking for the Siamangs here today at the islands, be sure to check up high, just like with the orangutans, although the Siamangs are much more likely to be moving around the exhibit. Next up, we'll talk about the Babarusa. Here at the islands, the animals are always rotating exhibits. Now you might see the Babarusa. This specific species of Babarusa is known as the Buru Babarusa, in reference to the area in which it lives. Its scientific name, Babarusa Babarusa, is of course Babarusa twice, which roughly means deer pig. This unique species of wild pig is distinguished from other pigs in a number of ways. Most obvious is the way their tusks grow in. Like all pigs, the tusks of the babarusa are essentially overgrown canine teeth. The tusks from the bottom jaw rise up the side of the face and curl around. The tusks from the top jaw actually curl out the side of the mouth in order to grow through the skin of the pig's snout. In captivity, these tusks have to be trimmed regularly as they are known to grow continuously and in some cases have even been observed growing into the animal's skull and killing it which is truly sad, and also quite baffling as to how the Babarusa has managed to survive so long. Here at the Louisville Zoo, 
the babarusa doesn't have to worry about such issues, as its keepers regularly file those tusks down so they don't have to deal with any overgrowing. Of course, in the wild, the tusks are far more prone to breakage than they are here in the safety of the wolves' zoo. So perhaps this is an advantage that's better to have when you're dealing with the struggles of the wilderness. Another distinguishing feature from other pigs is the lack of the rostral bone in their snout. Most pigs have this wide bone that allows them to root around for buried food in even hard areas like rocky soil. However, as you can see, the babarusa has quite a narrow face, partially because of the structure of its tusks, and so it does not have this same rooting capability that most pigs have. Because of this, babarusa have to dig around in softer areas like mud or sand to search for the buried treasure that pigs are so fond of. This babarusa, in particular, can be distinguished from other species of babarusa, as it is far hairier than most other species, and it is even hairier than some other pigs, like the warthog. Next up, you might be seeing the Sumatran pike. Here at the islands, the animals are always rotating exhibits. Now you might be seeing the Malayan tapir, its scientific name, Acrocoria indica, partially refers to its home, where it was first discovered in India. And, well, I'll be honest, guys, this one stumped me. But as far as I can tell, Acrocoria refers to flexible skin in reference to the proboscis on their face. The proboscis is the fleshy, trunk-like structure on the front of the tapir's face on the end of which you can see their nose. It looks like a very short elephant trunk, but it's in fact more similar to that of an anteater. It is also called the Asian, Asiatic, Oriental, Indian, or piebald tapir. The first four, of course, referring to its home here in Asia, and the last referring to its black and white coloration. This is the only tapir that lives in Asia, the rest of which find their home in South America. Like all tapirs, it's eyesight is quite poor, and it relies on its flexible proboscis to sniff its way around its enclosure. Its black and white coloration is also unique among tapirs, and it is believed to help evade predation in several ways. Firstly, the sharp color change helps to break up its outline, and secondly, it causes it to, to some animals, resemble a large rock when it's resting. It spends most of its time in water, which helps support its large body. Malayan tapirs are typically crepuscular, meaning active at the beginning and end of the day, but some have been observed behaving nocturnally or moving about at night. Here at the Louisville Zoo, I've seen the tapir moving about early in the day and close to closing time, but most often I see it relaxing in whatever water source it can find, depending on which exhibit you find it in. The babies of Malayan tapirs are particularly cute, but they're quite different looking from their adults. They have brown fur and a nice stripe and spot pattern that really helps them blend in with their surroundings. This coloration slowly fades as they progress towards adulthood, and at about one year, they will reach that standard black and white that you see on the tapir here at the Louisville Zoo. Hopefully, you've gotten a chance to see all five of the animals here at Islands. Next, we'll move on to the rest of the permanent exhibits here and see the Aldabra tortoise. 
What's that moving in the water? Is it a rock come alive? No, it's an Aldabra tortoise. Its scientific name, Aldabra chelis gigantea, means giant Aldabran tortoise. Go figure. This tortoise is one of the largest in the world, coming in second after its more famous cousin, the Galapagos tortoise. Like their more famous cousins, their longevity is incredible, and they are thought to be able to live over 200 years in ideal conditions. Of course, this is hard to verify, since human lifespans are naturally much shorter than this. In their natural habitat, these tortoises so thoroughly graze the plants that a special biome known as tortoise turf is created, where low-lying plants that are able to evade the tortoise's herbivory are able to thrive. These plants in particular will have seeds that are formed almost on the ground. And because of this, Aldabra tortoises are often compared to elephants in terms of their ability to change the environments that they live in. These tortoises are often found digging burrows or relaxing in the water during the heat of day. And these are the places that you're most likely to see them here at the zoo. I almost always see one in deep water where even its head is submerged. But don't worry, these tortoises have a much slower respiratory system than we do, and so can spend quite a bit of time underwater without fear of drowning. They're one of my favorite things to see. And they are a lot more common than the Galapagos tortoise, which is why at most zoos, instead of seeing the Galapagos tortoise, which is the largest, you'll see the Aldabra, which is the second largest. It is, of course, endangered, as one of its few homes is the island of Aldabra in the Seychelles. But due to its presence in many zoos, conservationists are hopeful that this tortoise will be around for many generations to be able to enjoy. Next up, and last exhibit here at the Louisville Zoo, we'll go see the little penguins. See you there. The last exhibit here at the Louisville Zoo is the Little Penguin. This is a newer exhibit here at the zoo. The Little Penguin's scientific name is Eudiptila minor. This means good little diver, which is quite cute. And in fact, it earns the distinction of being my wife's favorite scientific name here at the Louisville Zoo. This is, properly named, the world's smallest penguin and is known elsewhere as the fairy penguin blue penguin, or little blue penguin, in reference to the dark blue coloration on its back. They're usually only about a foot and a half tall in the wild, at the most. They live about seven years in the wild, but incredibly can live up to 25 years in captivity, about three and a half times longer than they would in the wild. Similar to African penguins, little penguins have been strongly impacted by human activities, although they have managed to maintain a somewhat larger population thus far and their native home around southern Australia, New Zealand, and the surrounding islands. Like most penguins and other seabirds, they are quite susceptible to oil spills and are also threatened by loss of habitat and depletion of prey species. The colonies that the little penguin creates are also quite a popular tourist destination for people visiting Australia, New Zealand, and those surrounding areas. Luckily, finding their home in Australia, there aren't too many predators that they have to deal with. And usually, 
they end up dealing mostly with feral dogs and cats. This is why there are so many successful colonies on isolated islands south of Australia and south of New Zealand, as there are no predators, on land at least, that are able to make their home there. It seems quite fitting here at the Louisville Zoo for our final exhibit to be such a cute and happy bird. Thanks for walking through the Louisville Zoo with us. As you, wave, as you make your way back up the island slope here, be sure to stop by the spinning water globe on your way out, as I loved it when I was a kid, as did all the kids who've been to the zoo. And I still like to put my hands on it now and find the city of Louisville as I spin it around. Of course, stop by the gift shop as well on your way out. Maybe find a book. That's what I like to do. Anyways, thanks for walking through with us. It's been good to be here with you. And remember, with Zoo Pals, you never have to go to a zoo alone. Until I see you again. Penguin. Ha <laughs>